This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. From the beginning of the pandemic, the authorities have stressed that many restrictions are simply intended to preserve capacity in our healthcare system. And the arrival of Omicron just before Christmas, a time when hospitals traditionally gear down a bit to give their staffs a break, is adding to the many challenges they are facing. Some hospitals have already cut back on non-urgent procedures. Others have cut visitors and are figuring out what they will do if large numbers of staff test positive. The good news is that so far, despite the mushrooming numbers of cases, the number of people in hospitals and ICUs is in check, though it seems to be trending up. Let me give the numbers out again. If you have questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Kevin Smith, CEO of the University Health Network, and thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Smith. A pleasure to be with you. Uh, first of all, I'm assuming, just like everybody else, this came just as you thought we might have been on the way to more normal. W- when did you realize what a big problem this was going to be? Yeah, we think in um, in kind of moments these days, don't we, Libby? Yeah. Um, so, you know, just a few weeks ago, none of us had heard of the word Omicron as it related to a virus. And uh, since that occurred, I think we almost immediately upon seeing the South Africa experience, a lot of um, consternation and concern and most importantly, preparation. We owe a huge uh, debt of gratitude to the scientists and physicians and nurses in South Africa who made sure the rest of the world got that data quickly. And since then, we've really been trying to prepare to respond to you know, what might be the worst of the virus, well, the worst case scenario as well as hope for the best-case scenario, which, as you've described so far, has been reasonable. We're not seeing large admissions yet, but we do need to be prepared for large numbers of admissions or equally for large numbers of healthcare providers to not be available because of illness. And, of course, the, the perfect storm would be if both of those occurred. Well, the the first thing that struck me about it, because I, I actually know of people who uh, tested positive is there, there's like this huge circle of what are considered close contacts. And it is, certainly in the initial phase, they're, they're all told to go home and isolate. Absolutely. So the original uh, instruction, I, I think, has been if you have been exposed to someone who has a confirmed case or even a symptomatic, one should consider isolating. I think as we see those numbers grow and grow, and we'll, of course, listen to the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Ontario and, of course, Public Health Agency of Canada eventually, but I'm not sure that that'll be possible if we see such large numbers, including um, healthcare and other essential workers who may have been exposed but are asymptomatic, have had a rapid test or even a PCR test confirmed negative, and we'll, we'll just need them at work to keep the system running. So I'm, um, I believe that may have to occur if we see the kinds of numbers that some are suggesting. Well, uh, I, I know that Quebec is definitely considering that, having asymptomatic healthcare workers work. So you're saying that here in Ontario, that's being considered as well? Well, I think in Quebec, they're actually saying that positive, people who test positive will also be asked to work if they're feeling well enough to um, at, at the moment in Ontario, we're really discussing people who ha- who've had exposure only, and um, we haven't yet come to a discussion point on would we laterally be talking about people who actually tested positive. Obviously, that would be our most uh, severe situation, um, and we'd consider that along with our partners and look for direction from Dr. Moore, the Chief Medical Officer of Health. Um, at that time. So what's your reaction to that, that in Quebec, they might actually have people who have tested positive uh, working on on patients? 
You know, it's it's one of those issues of um, obviously none of us would wish to be in that situation. So first and foremost, um, is the individual well enough? So do they feel well enough to be at work? If they do, so if they're positive but asymptomatic and they're willing to um, follow very aggressively the um, public health measures and infection control and prevention measures, and there are lives at risk, then I, one, one is left with very little choice other than to pursue that approach. I'm, I'm hoping that won't be the case for Quebec or for any province in Ontario or in Canada. But if it is, again, it would be under the very close supervision of our IPAC professionals. And with something we'd monitor very, very carefully, we would worry greatly about outbreaks in the clinical environment, taking more staff out and potentially putting at risk already vulnerable often immune-compromised patients. We know very sick people will be in hospital over this Christmas, since those who aren't that ill were were obviously trying to get home and support from home. Uh, Here's another question that I have about all of this. So we've started to hear about uh, severe strain and limits on testing, because, you know, this thing started, everybody rushed out and, and got a test, be it an anti- antigen test. If that tested positive, they confirmed it with a PCR test. But uh, we've already heard from the chief medical officer that uh, those tests are not going to be that available. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. Again, I would um, suggest that should the kind of overwhelming status emerge, and it looks like that's possible in terms of testing, that if you have symptoms and you're not an essential worker, that it might be wisest if you've tried and been unsuccessful in getting a test, to simply assume you have the illness. To isolate and, and uh, manage the illness if it's mild disease, which would be um, quite, quite simple to do, and obviously there's lots of advice on how to do so. And obviously, should you develop more severe symptoms, particularly respiratory symptoms or trouble breathing, then obviously one should uh, pursue their primary care provider if available and or an emergency room if it got to a situation where they felt it was emergent or life-threatening. Interesting that you're mentioning a, a primary care provider. There are a lot of primary care providers who are requiring a negative test before they'll see a patient. Right. So I know a lot are absolutely doing that, and I think that's going to be an ongoing discussion. Obviously, they want to protect themselves and their staff. But again, if testing is really overwhelmed and we need to think about only testing those who need to be at work, then I think we'll have to go back and revisit that. Obviously, always thinking about the safety of the provider as well as the care of the patient. Um, we are, we'll obviously be having further discussions should we see surges occur in those presenting with, with illness. But as you said at the opening, so far we're rather encouraged by the data. Again, we, we like to live in hope on this one, but uh, want to assure your listeners that many, many contingency plans are under development or have been developed. Uh, you, I, I think you're being very diplomatic talking about a, an ongoing conversation with primary care because the other question then is, or the other potential problem then is, if, if people can't see their doctors, then they're going to go to eMERGE. And, uh, you know, eMERGE emergencies are, you know, crowded at the best of times. Yeah. I really want to encourage people not to go to eMERGE simply to pursue a test. That, that isn't a very good use of emergent services, especially now. And again, if you have the symptoms of COVID, probability is you have COVID. And um, again, if we can't get you confirmed, if we can't get you a, a rapid antigen test or a PCR test, uh, or, or you're simply being delayed because of uh, those who are needed in the workforce to care for, for civil society, um, you know, again, isolate, stay at home. And to be frank, there's not an awful lot one can do other than the normal course of, pro- of uh, care around fever and, and the illness uh, as it presents. So if it's mild disease, the best course of action is really that isolation period at home. But going to eMERGE just to confirm it really is not an advantage to anyone and puts everyone at risk. Hmm. Um, what about those drugs? We've been hearing about a number of drugs uh, that can uh, reduce the severity of the illness mm. or the yeah. course of the illness. Are those readily available? So 
So we are for sure for monoclonal antibodies. There are a number of sites already set up in Ontario and a number more opening up, including a um, home visit site that we're working on, which I think is important, particularly for those who can't get out or those who have uh, historically not uh, trusted relationships with the healthcare system. And then the latter one that's very exciting to me, and I know is on the docket for Health Canada's review, is the new antiviral that Pfizer has recently reduced, and I believe was approved by the FDA yesterday. Well, um, that's and it's, oh, sorry, Lily. So, um, sorry, I was just going to say that's 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 not something that's going to be available, you know, over the holidays. No, I think that's that's true. Although I think you know, large numbers of us are encouraging the government of Canada to think about how emergency use could be granted. Should we see a significant surge and a threat to our critical care system? And so I know the federal government will be doing you know their very best to balance the normal process of ensuring a new drug is safe with the risk to Canadians and the risk to overwhelming the system. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, very optimistic that they will get this one through as quickly as possible. I know all of our political and public servants are seized with looking at this one carefully. It has, in its um, clinical trials, 89% um, prevention of serious illness and hospitalization. So what a great outcome that would be if 89% of people were able to prevent a hospitalization. Much of what we're fearing could be greatly alleviated. Those monoclonal antibodies, uh, are they given in pill form or are they intravenous? And uh, you, I think that they're very expensive drugs. So how, how are they just for very severe illness? Uh, so just to distinguish between the two, yeah. one is the oral antiviral, the new Pfizer drug yeah. that I'm referring to, Paxlovid. Um, and the monoclonal antibodies are by infusion, so they do require an intravenous um, intervention. And obviously, uh, that's a lot more consuming of healthcare providers at a time when we have few of them. Uh, the results of monoclonal antibodies are, are low, much lower than the 89% or 90% we're seeing um, alleged by the new Pfizer drug. So, but obviously, even at 20%, which is some of the published literature of effectiveness of monoclonal antibodies, reducing um, uh, hospital need and severity by 20% would be a welcome um, result should we be in a situation where a surge occurs. Uh, speaking of infusions, um, how are you doing with you know uh, regular cancer treatment, chemotherapy, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm, pl- I'm really pleased to say thanks to the remarkable staff at Princess Margaret. We've been doing reasonably well, but it is at the expense of our staff. They are very burnt out, very tired, working very, very long hours, all, of course, um, because they know that, that patients are in great need. And in many of these cases, delayed care can result in a poorer outcome for the, the patient. Um, to date, we've had very little delay. We have had delay in some of our surgical and procedural areas for cancers that are considered lower risk for delay, like prostate disease and, and some other slow-growing cancers. Uh, but you know, we're also very concerned that because primary care has um, not necessarily been as accessible because of COVID, the number of people who might have been earlier in the screening process, so screened earlier, disease identified earlier, treatment begun earlier, that in fact, we run the risk of seeing quite a large number of people with more advanced disease. And our initial data suggests that we're already seeing a bit of that. We're seeing very large numbers of patients in emergency rooms as well right now. And um, obviously, that, that's quite overwhelming. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's been an issue since the, the beginning of, of this thing. What about other types of surgery? I, I know that most hospitals were starting to clear the backlog. So where are you at with that? Yes. So we were about 5,000 cases behind, um, and we caught up by about 2,000. But of course, now the number has grown again, or is growing as we speak. So we're back up probably to around the 5,000 cases of surgical or procedural care. Um, fortunately, up until um, really very, very recently, the last day or so, We've been running our surgical and procedural programs over capacity at about 107%, really focusing on catch-up. Um, obviously, now that's going to slow down because of the holiday season and healthcare providers needing some time off or hoping they'll get some time off and don't need to be redeployed because of COVID. 
Um, and then our plan would be to restart early in January. You know, some of our colleague hospitals have decided to take a couple of week break. Um, we have not yet decided to do that. We'll, we'll pursue, uh, evaluate that each day to see, do we have the staff? Do we have the bed numbers? And if patients are booked and we can meet their needs safely and effectively and staff are not put at risk, then, of course, then we'd like to pursue it. So what are the most common surgeries that have been uh, delayed uh, uh, in the past? It's been kind of orthopedic surgery. Uh, what's the situation at UHN? Yeah, exactly the same. So orthopedics, um, ophthalmology, some general surgery that is not um, malignant in nature, not uh, cancerous in nature, um, a number of what I'll call lower acuity, higher volume surgeries, bumps and bumps and other reductions and things like that. Sorry, so, what, what, um, what was that? What are those? You know, just things that you might look at having having removed or having... Um, some minor, some more minor surgical interventions procedures, and um, similarly, we're we're really trying to prioritize um, serious cancers, um, uh, cardiac, uh, neurosciences, neurosurgery, uh, and those illnesses that could result in a bad outcome uh, if we didn't treat them more aggressively. Now, with the delays, Libby, that we've had because of COVID previously we see a percentage of patients convert from um, elective or scheduled is a more appropriate term to urgent. So the, their disease worsens and they end up having to be done. At any time, about half of our bed capacity in Ontario, slightly less, is filled with urgent or emergent cases. So over the holiday season, while we're dealing with um, COVID, we're also dealing with strokes and heart attacks and serious motor vehicle accidents and those things don't go away. We have to make sure we maintain capacity for both. You mentioned uh, giving your staff some time off and and making contingency. So uh, is that is that a matter where you're saying, okay, you can have however many days off, but but you might be called back? Is that what's happening? Yes, that's exactly what's happening. First, um, asking for volunteers that in the event of a surge, who would be willing and feels well enough to be back in the workplace, obviously that's dependent day-to-day on their their exposure and wellness related to COVID. But uh, that being said, if they are well enough and they are willing, uh, they're signing up to do so. And sadly, if not, if we got to the point where we are truly overwhelmed, um, I know no health provider ever wants to put a patient at risk if they can help then we'd be looking at going out and asking people who had not yet volunteered to, if they're well enough to return to work, even though they were booked, they booked off. Hmm. Uh, not, and not the situation we hope to find ourselves in. I, I hope not, too. I mean, uh, on the other side of things, and I guess this is a good thing, at the beginning of COVID, people with serious uh, serious events were reluctant to go to hospital, but I think that's yeah. over now, right? You're exactly right. Uh, we saw a real dip in the number of people presenting to emergency rooms, concerningly so, that a, a large number of people across the province actually should have gone and may have worse outcomes as a result of not presenting. Again, you know, it may have been a heart issue. It might have been related to stroke. It may have been related to some other other um, uh, illness that required intervention. But if they'd gone, they would have had a better outcome. Um, again, now we're not seeing that. Our emerge volumes are very high, and um, we're also challenged by the emerge volumes and our off-time, um, off-loading times with our, our partners in the paramedic sector. Oh. So we have so many patients coming in that it is challenging to receive them and release the paramedics as quickly as possible so they can be back out and looking for other patients who require their unique services. I know that generally speaking, during the holidays, there's an increase in in certain types of uh, bad things, heart attacks. Uh, but with smaller gatherings, I mean, do you expect that again this year, or can there be sort of a better result from COVID? Well, two things that are again, where we we look at try to look at the glasses half full, um, and and again hope for the best, but prepare for the less so. So two things. One, um, we're not seeing a lot of flu at this point. Uh, we've had reasonable uptake of the vaccine, but also masking and 
hand washing and the normal uh, processes of good public health are, again, I think, preventing flu from spreading. So we're very encouraged by not seeing large numbers of flu at all. And then the second piece, we're not in a particularly cold or wet area where, and lots of snow, where we'll often see people who probably are best not to be shoveling in cold weather uh, result in either as an asthma attack or a cardiac event. So, so far, um, all good on that front. We're going to cross our fingers to get through the holiday season and uh, hope for good weather so that that doesn't change. Mm-hmm. So, um, basically, the, the, the bottom line on, on the message to people in terms of managing their general health and COVID? Well, I think they're bottom. You know what? First and foremost, get that booster. So anyone who has not yet got the booster, I know it's been it's challenging of late, but um, was it was very available up until recent uh, days when it's been really flooded by people who now realize I really need to do this. We're going to work uh, with our public health partners to move heaven and earth to open as many slots as possible so everyone who wants one can get one. And I hope everyone will really carefully consider that. We know again already that those who have it, way less likelihood of hospitalization or serious illness or ending up in an ICU. Second, follow the public health measures. Mask, distance, when possible, see family outdoors. I know people want to get together for the holidays. Wisely limit that to as few people as you can, ideally those with whom you regularly reside. Um, And then, of course, um, if you do have symptoms, uh, either get a test if you can do so easily. And if not, isolate um, and and ensure that you wait that week to 10 days. And we, in most cases, also clear carefully. In the cases of serious illness, like shortness of breath or feeling very unwell, obviously people will need to pursue care in an emergency room. Um, do you have any reaction? I mean, there are a lot of people who were planning on using those uh, rapid antigen tests just uh, f- for their gatherings. And now a lot of them are just not available. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how many people are actually going to um, rethink their plans because of that. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's another tool in our, in our arsenal of defending each other. And I think rapid tests are a terrific um, intervention for at a population level. Uh, They're very effective when active disease is present. And I think particularly when they're done more frequently, uh, you know, a very good addition to the other surveillance mechanisms. I hope people will really carefully consider whether or not a virtual visit or virtual dinner or an outdoor gathering is something that they could um, support. I know particularly with frail elderly people that many are feeling they don't want to see them alone at Christmas. But Equally, it's those very frail elderly people who are often immune compromised who are most at risk from this disease. So I think people have to weigh their choices very, very carefully. Personally, I would say avoid um, any contact that you can and do do it as virtually or outdoors. And um, if you have to go beyond that, remain masked and uh, and certainly get your vaccine. Uh, Dr. Smith, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think I'd like to leave. thank your viewers for their interest and their dedication. Uh, encourage them, of course, get that vaccine as quickly as possible. Um, I would like to leave all with the profound gratitude of all the people working, not only in healthcare, but across services to support our public, healthcare workers, um, transit workers, people working in the transportation industry to get food and supplies to the right places, our pharmacy colleagues who are making sure all of these clinics actually run and all the draws of vaccines occur. So, so many people working together, all levels of government uh, working very, very closely together. And um, I think people are trying their very best. If we look at what we know now versus what we knew when this all began, we're good at managing this disease. We know a lot more about it. Um, we're, we have a, a very um, reasonable and, and thoughtful response to our critical care situation. We're actually acting more like a true provincial healthcare system than ever in my career. Um, the critical care community has come together like never before to move patients as required and load level. So, you know what, I, I'm optimistic while um, guardedly so. 
Dr. Smith, first of all, thank you very much. And uh, we all appreciate the very hard work of all healthcare workers at the University Health Network and elsewhere uh, under these very trying circumstances at a, a very trying time. And uh, Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas to you and all of your listeners. And thanks so much for your ongoing coverage of this important uh, process. Well, we will get through it. Okay, that's a good message to end it it on. We will get through it. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. Uh, We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about something else. Highway 413, you know, it is going to be a big deal election issue. It's been simmering for a long time, and we will get to it when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Turning now to something that will definitely be a major election issue, Highway 413. In a unanimous vote, Markham City Council joins the municipalities of Vaughan and King in their opposition to Highway 413. It is a proposed four to six lane highway backed by the Ford government that would provide a new 59-kilometer-long transit corridor from Highway 400 in Vaughan to the intersection of 407 and the 401 at the Mississauga-Brampton border. Now, these three municipalities, they are three of the nine municipalities in York Region. And guess what? York Region is endorsing the Highway 13 project. Now, also opposing the plan, Mississauga, Halton Hills, Orangeville, and Brampton City Councils, they cite negative environmental impacts, increased dependence on cars, and uh, more residential sprawl as negatives. And they also dispute the claim that it'll cut commuting time because, you know, if you build it, more cars will come. That makes sense to me. Now, the government, on the other hand, and its supporters claim that this will relieve gridlock, create jobs, improve the movement of goods, and save drivers commuting time. Okay, the numbers. This is a hot one. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And joining me now, Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario, and Jim Jones, regional councillor for the city of Markham. Welcome, and thank you both for joining us. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to join you, Libby. Okay, let us begin with Jim. So you've been working on this for a long time. Well, I've been working on uh, on transit, both the 407 transit way, uh, I want a rail transit way, and also uh, transit for uh, the go lines. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then with transit for the go lines, it would be, I used to call it rail integrated communities, but now they're calling it transit oriented communities. Okay, well, uh, but working on it, trying to get the uh, the council to oppose this particular project. Yes, yes. yes. So, uh, has that been difficult? Well, I initially put my motion in. I believe it was April, and at the time, uh, it was uh, deferred by the mayor, saying that he wanted uh, somebody like the deputy minister from MTO to come, and we finally got the somebody from MTO. Uh, I guess in in November. Uh, Mike Schreiner, um, municipalities are creatures of the province, and in this case, even the region is in favor of this. So is this uh, symbolic, or is it more than that? Oh, it's way more than that. And I want to thank Jim and all the other local municipal councillors along the proposed Highway 413 route who are coming out against uh, Highway 413, all of the citizens who have been building a movement against Highway 413. I can tell you there are stop Highway 413 signs throughout the region because people recognize that spending 10 plus billion dollars on a highway that experts are saying will only save commuters 30 seconds, that will pave over 2,000 acres of prime farmland, uh, 400 acres of the Greenbelt, cross 85 waterways that are essential to providing drinking water for us and protecting us from flooding, 
makes absolutely no sense. I'm full in line with Jim that we should be looking at a 407 transit way. We should be looking at improved go service on the Kitchener-Milton line. We should be running a go line uh, to Bolton. And I would argue we should be looking at negotiating with the 407 for a truck lane to um, ease the trucking congestion in the region. That would be a far more fiscally prudent, environmentally responsible way of approaching transportation issues in the region. Right. There are a lot of people who uh, are saying that the 407 is a better solution. But what what I'm saying is <clears throat> if the people uh, who are opposing it don't have the power to do anything about it, um, how does how, how does this opposition come to fruition? Well, I would say, you know, support political parties like the Ontario Greens who have been fighting this at the provincial level and leading the charge against the Ford government irresponsible plans. I mean, 413 is a financial and climate disaster. You know, it'll supercharge sprawl, which is going to supercharge climate emissions, 17.4 million megatons over the next two decades. And it's going to do nothing to solve gridlock or affordability challenges. Essentially, what Ford is saying is, we're giving up on building affordable homes close to where you work, and we're going to force people to have to commute hours every day which is just going to make life less affordable for people and will ultimately make gridlock worse in the region. Well, uh, I don't even know that there's going to be affordable homes far from where you work. Uh, Jim Jones, um, what's your reaction to the fact that the region is, is in favor and you've got three of nine on your side so far? Well, maybe we'll get Richmond Hill too, but uh, uh, what really got me going on this is I, I go to Niagara-on-the-Lake quite a bit, and when I travel the 407, I don't see any traffic uh, basically west of 427 or, or even as Pine Valley. And to try to say that they're going to save 30 seconds, but they were comparing 30 seconds to the 401, okay? And when you look at the 401, it is... They're saying jammed. it'll save 30 minutes if you go the entire length. Yeah, it meant 30 minutes, yeah. But the thing is that they're comparing it to the 401, which is jam-packed. The 407 is empty. And so I talked to uh, the 407, and nobody talked to them about, because, uh, you know, I think w what we should be doing is giving them, uh, the truckers, a special rate in off hours. In peak hours, they pay full freight, and uh, it would solve a lot of problems. Okay, let's take a couple of calls here. We've got Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hello, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. And uh, Mike Schreiner, um, you and I spoke on this same subject almost a year ago. Um, and Jim Jones, these suggestions are all very valid. Um, the money that they spend on the uh, 413 could be used to either subsidize um, the 407 I think the government could do even better. I mean, I have traveled the 407 numerous times. Um, the trucks don't use it at all because it's way too expensive. So here's something the federal government... I think they don't want trucks on the highway because it, it wrecks the highway. Well, Libby, uh, I, don't, initially, I don't buy that at all. Yeah, here do I, because the 407 initially was a truck bypass. And yep. uh, that's what it was built for. And then the truckers wouldn't use it because of the toll. Yeah, well, exactly. And what's so infuriating about this is that because of COVID, the actual 407 was in violation of their contractual obligation. Uh, and instead of forcing them to pay a billion dollar penalty, the Ford government let them off the hook. Why not use that leverage to actually negotiate a dedicated truck lane for the 407 so we could ease congestion on, on the 401, get goods moving faster and save the province a ton of money? Yeah, that 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 issue seems to have uh, disappeared. That they they didn't, and the, there was. Uh, I'm trying to remember what Carolyn Mulroney said, the transport minister, and it was uh, some kind of something with some kind of contractual. I don't know, uh, but that that seems to have disappeared. The fact that they didn't they didn't do anything about that outstanding penalty. Well, exactly. And it seems to me like it would have been a perfect opportunity to sit down and negotiate some sort of reasonable solution with the 407 that would, you know, save Ontarians lots of money, get goods moving faster, help relieve gridlock, 
and not spend billions on, on a highway that's going to pave over prime farmland that we need to feed us and wetlands that we need to protect us from flooding and cleaning our drinking water. Okay, Ron, thanks for your call. Let's go to uh, Pat in Toronto. Hello, Pat. Good afternoon, Libby. I have another concern, and that is the real threat to um, our democracy with the uh, the MZOs, municipal zoning orders, which allow the um, which allow the ministers to make orders, and they totally get around anything passed by either um, municipal government or by the Ontario Municipal Board or. Uh, Institutions like that that, that that have come up after the um, after the uh, OMB, but the it, the other part of it is it's a pay to play, and it's well known that the <clears throat> developers are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars into the Conservative Party, and then they get their MZOs. So not Pat, only are we hurting Pat, the environment, I, I, and, I understand your concern about MZOs. We're talking about the highway. Do you have a yeah, view but on it's the same thing? Because MZOs are all part of this, Libby. That's the point. That's the point. I mean, when you take a look at the the number of MZOs that are related to this highway and the development around the highway, that's the concern. So this is very, very serious. Not just the highway itself. But the process by which we're getting to this highway, that's the sad part. And Mr. Crombie was the one who identified that way back at the beginning. So, yeah, no, no, this this is a very serious concern that we should all be um, fighting against. Okay, Pat, I'll ask uh, Jim Jones to respond to that. Well, I don't disagree with him on the MZOs, but to me the issue here is is uh, the, the 413 or... Uh, TOCs and affordable housing, and I favor uh, transit-oriented communities along both the uh, the GO lines and along the 407. And and I also favor um, uh, if you want to get the cars off the road, you're going to have to build decent transit. You're not going to get the cars off the road by building the 413. Uh, Mike Schreiner, so uh, where do you go from here, uh, aside from telling people to vote for the Green Party to try to uh, uh, stop this highway? Well, I, I, I really encourage citizens to work with uh, forward-thinking councillors like Jim who want to help us save money, develop our communities in a more responsible way, both financially and environmentally, uh, and and push more municipal councils to pass the kinds of resolutions that um, Markham and, you know, Vaughn and King and all Nils and Brampton and Mississauga and many others have done because that puts pressure on the provincial government. And I would say, you know, get involved in these citizen movements that are putting pressure on the government as well. Cause you know, the premier keeps saying people support this. Well, if you look at the polling data, the majority of people don't support it. And if you look at all the signs popping up on, people's front yards and on their farms, uh, people along the highway route don't support it either. Okay. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again sometime soon. Thank you so much, Jim Jones and Mike Schreiner. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, Libby, and to your listeners. Thank you. Okay, uh, we are going to take another break. And when we come back... Um, Upping our masking game. I think that's one of the things that is on the to-do list with Omicron. We all got used to wearing them the way we wear them, and maybe we need a little upgrade when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, for those of you following along on the live stream, I just put my mask on for demonstration purposes. I'm alone in a studio behind multiple doors and layers of plexiglass, but uh, I prefer a medical surgical mask. I put it around my ears. I smooth it uh, around my nose. It covers my chin, but you know, uh, I have a small face and uh, there's still a little gap on the side. Uh, so I am thinking that because of 
Omicron, I need to up my mask game. And as a matter of fact, uh, yesterday I saw a doctor and she was wearing two masks. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm considering. Uh, what we know is that the least effective are those single layer cloth masks and the most effective are the N95s. So let's take a look at some of the options in between. Uh, and if you have questions about the best way to wear a mask, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Dr. Jha, nice talking to you again. Uh, nice to talk to you, Libby. So, um, when you are, to the extent that you are out and about, uh, are most people wearing their masks properly, and is it enough for the Omicron variant? I think people are wearing their masks generally correctly, and uh, you nailed it exactly as to how to wear masks. Uh, I don't see your live stream, but I'm sure you've got the correct procedure. It has to cover your nose and your mouth. You don't want your nose exposed. Um, and um, Obviously, you want to avoid uh, touching your face or removing your mask at any point. So this, what really matters is to wear masks in indoor places with poor ventilation. So certainly in office settings, I wear a mask when we've got any kind of uh, team meetings or uh, we, we have a, a congregation of some sort. In my office, of course, I don't need to wear my mask throughout the day. Should you double mask? Well, I think that's a safe uh, thing to do if you are worried about being exposed, for example, on in public transport or in an indoor setting. Outdoors, quite frankly, when I'm walking next to the, go down to the place where I like to buy my good local coffee, I don't wear a mask out, outdoors. I don't think that's needed currently. Uh, so double masking could be a good idea. I've uh, seen people with a slightly different kind of mask. I think, are they called a K95 or an yeah, N95? Yeah. yeah. So what are those and, and uh, are they better than, uh, you know, the, the disposable surgical masks that I favor? Yes, they are better. Uh, I think, again, one have to use some judgment. If you're really, really worried, uh, then you might want to use the N95 mask. Yeah, I think it's mostly because you'll feel better or you feel more protected. They do give more protection, but the difference between proper masking using the basic surgical disposable mask and the N95, K95 mask for most people is a small, small benefit. It's certainly for healthcare workers and people who have more frontline exposures, that would be more sensible. Um, but I think the key thing is wear the mask properly indoors and in any places where there's a fair amount of, uh, of crowding. And for me, my personal risk is really on the Toronto transit when I take public transport in the morning. And that's where uh, most crowding occurs. And there I make sure I wear my mask and I kind of look around and ask if, if people are wearing their masks properly. And if they don't, I always carry extra masks with me. And if someone doesn't have a mask, or is not wearing it properly, I offer them one. Uh, yeah, I, ho I hope you haven't had any bad flack from that. No, no, I think people generally, I mean, if you ask politely, say, look, if you're missing a mask, I'm happy to give you one. And, you know, people don't get too upset by that. Uh, so, again, uh, with those uh, K95 or whatever, they're not quite the N95, right? Not quite that, but uh, I, I think the key here is, uh, to make sure that masks are widespread indoors. Uh, that's more important than the type of mask and that the correct procedure for wearing a mask, as you've demonstrated, is followed. But those would give us more reduction in Omicron spread than would be for everyone to switch to the, the more uh, sophisticated mask. And um, we've heard, started to hear sort of bad things about cloth masks. Uh, often they don't fit well, especially if they're a single layer, though I've seen people recommend wearing a cloth mask over a surgical mask. Yeah, those are just, I think, preferences. You, uh, the, the 
surgical masks, because they have a, a layer of uh, plastic, uh, do have better um, better protection than would cloth masks. But certainly cloth masks are better than no masks. And some people find them uncomfortable. For example, they can't breathe as well through the plastic, but they can through the cloth. So the key thing is to make sure you've got a mask over your nose and mouth and that um, you're in an indoor uh, place where uh, not going to uh, be facing people who don't have masks. So if you get into a place where people aren't masked or they're not wearing the mask properly, I think politely pointing out how to wear them correctly is helpful. Otherwise, I just walk away on the Toronto transport. If someone is not wearing a mask, I just walk away and try to sit in some other place. Okay, I'll give the numbers out again. Uh, that's uh, that's a whole other thing. Uh, do you ever uh, talk to people who are either not wearing masks or not wearing them properly and what's the kind of re- reaction you get? And do you have questions about the proper way to wear your mask? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Dr. Prabhat Jha. And the other question that I have is, removing the mask. I mean, I I have to say I'm wearing a mask indoors. And then if I go into my office or or home, um, I will take it off and then I might put it back on again. Is is that bad? I think that's fine. I mean, you you want to, uh, you don't have to change the mask uh, very frequently. Uh, If it's a cloth mask, then the suggestions are you should try to wash it every day or every couple of days. But uh, I think what you've outlined is is a sensible thing. Remember, our goal is uh, very much you want to decrease respiratory droplets uh, coming from people's nose or their mouth. So the risky times are really when, for example, people are eating together or um, that uh, they have their mask down and there's very poor ventilation. It's not risky walking down the street and you have your mask off and you know you pass someone else who might have their mask off. That's not a particularly risky um, risky situation. So just being alert as to when to wear masks properly. And I think with Omicron, it also changes the dynamic. I'm very much encouraging family gatherings that uh, obviously will be held over uh, Christmas break to try to mask as much as possible. Obviously, testing would be the other part of the equation, but try to test as much as possible. Well, yeah, if you can get a test. Uh, I know that at the beginning, I I mean, and this is probably a stupid question uh, or a stupid, uh, that I thought that maybe, you know, when we thought that that it, it wasn't uh, just these kinds of droplets, that I kind of wondered, you know, can any any of the uh, infectious droplets end up on the front of the mask? They uh, they can, but their likelihood of getting inside is uh, quite low. And what we do know is uh, that worry, for example, of droplets being on surfaces, well, we really were, uh, I suppose, in retrospect, overreacted to that early on. People were cleaning surfaces all the time, and uh, but that's a really uncommon source of transmission. The main thing is, just if you simplify it, is if you're in a basement or in a bar and there's a lot of people without masks and uh, they're drinking and, and singing, and that's where you get one person's droplets or uh, the, the, the little viruses that come out in the breath to circulate among others. So that's the situation to which we should be uh, uh, concerned. But I don't have to worry that there might be a droplet on the front of my mask and I'm putting it back on. And No, not so much. That's a very small, small risk. Yeah. Okay, we uh, have a couple of people with questions here. We'll see how many we can get through. Janet in Ajax. Hi, Janet. Hi. Um, I have a question. We're at Play Dart. Several people have been wearing these plastic see-through masks barely covering their nose, and it's all open at the top. It's not pinching the nose and open at the side. Oh, I remember those. Those are, aren't they useless, Dr. Joe? They're awful. And they're awful. Yeah, I think you want to stick to the masks that are generally used, uh, the, the surgical masks, which are now widely available, 
um, those I think are the safest ones. Or for more frontline people, the more complex uh, K95 or for healthcare workers, the N95. I think sticking to those is a sensible way. If no other choice, making a cloth mask carefully is um, is a reasonable strategy, but I think now the masks are widely available and pretty cheap. Okay, Janet, I hope that answers your question. Oh, indeed. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, Erica in Burlington. Hello, Erica. Hello, yes. I am concerned about visiting a dentist and an optometrist by the end of the year. What should I do? I think you shouldn't worry. The dentist and optometrist now are, uh, they all have very high rates of vaccinations and they'll be among the first to certainly get the booster dose. That's the uh, recommendations. All frontline workers are getting the third dose um, uh, of the vaccines. Plus, they wear face shields and masks generally. So if they're infected, their chances of infecting you are uh, very, very low. So I wouldn't worry about uh, going to a dentist or an optometrist. Which means either way, I'm not wearing a mask. <laughs> yeah, but you're not wearing a mask, but they're wearing a face shield and sometimes a mask and a face shield. So all of that really decreases the possible forward transmission. So I, I wouldn't be worried. So I shouldn't cancel. Okay, Erica, thanks for that. Uh, we have time for one more quick Thank one. You. Murray and Malton. Hi, Murray. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine, thanks. Go ahead. We good, have good. The guys upstairs are working. I got to move. Uh, anyway, a friend of mine has a narrow face, and what she does is she cuts a bit of the chin out. So then now you were saying your cheeks, there's air gaps in your cheeks. Yeah, but the 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 I wouldn't cut the bottom out of a surgical mask because it's no, just just enough that uh, it's it's just above the chin, right? So now when you pull it down, it sticks closer to your face all the way down. Hmm. Right. I don't, know. I don't think you her. want to do that. Uh, it, yeah. It's a very simple thing. Remember, the, the droplets come out of your mouth, and if there's any open space, then they can come out uh, below. So this is yeah. why the no, droplets are the way she does it is still fits below your chin. Okay, no, Murray. The way she does it is still fits tight to her chin, right? But it just is. She's able to pull it down, so now she has none on her cheeks. Okay. Uh, I would say if the mask doesn't fit, uh, double mask, and that's maybe a better way of uh, getting it to fit. Sensible. Okay, Dr. Zhao, last 20 seconds, what would you like to leave leave us with? I think uh, certainly get uh, the third dose, particularly if you're older, and if you can get rapid tests, however you can, grab them and use them at home. That's the most important advice. Okay. Uh, if if you get a bead on any rapid t- tests, let us know. Dr. Pravaja, thank you so much uh, for that very useful information, and happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.